Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the state of the ever-increasingly authoritarian Republican Party as they hack the media by being too terrible to hold to account, hack the democratic process through gerrymandering, and endlessly rebrand because in their core, they stand for nothing. Clips today are from The Majority Report, Amanpour and Company, The Bradcast, Citations Needed, The Muckrake Political Podcast, and All In with Chris Hayes, with additional members-only clips from Amanpour and Company and The Rational National. Lauren Boebert, congressperson from from Colorado. This is really important. And, And, you know, actually, you wonder, cart before the horse. Colorado is like... It's not teetering in the way that like Virginia is. And I and I don't think that's a coincidence based upon like sort of like uh, the history of things like racism and whatnot. Yeah, my understanding is the um, CRT stuff particularly didn't do terribly well in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think if there was a way to map and it probably is like, what was it? Um, uh, the roots, what was that book that we had where you could actually see voting patterns based upon the number of slaves to slave owner ratio, um, deep roots, I think it was called, but one wonders if the changes in Colorado bring this about or what, what the cause and causation is for a local newscaster to have this sort of revelation and articulate it on local TV in Denver. Uh, this is uh, a guy named Kyle Clark. I don't know anything about him, but this is, I think, a very good point. And it's a good point with just the Republicans, broadly speaking. And it is a real, regardless of, of how inept or how ideologically um, uh, corrupt you perceive the Democrats, there is like a baseline that is not achieved here. And you have polling that showed that like people think that the, the Democrats have gone further left from the center than the Republicans have gone right from the center. This is a helpful corrective. It's time that we acknowledge something that may be obvious by now. We hold Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boeber to a different standard than every other elected official in Colorado. We hold Congresswoman Boebert to a far lower standard. If we held her to the same standard as every other elected Republican and Democrat in Colorado, we would be here near nightly chronicling the cruel, false, and bigoted things that Boebert says for attention and fundraising. This is not about politics. Assuming politics is still about things like taxes, national security, healthcare, jobs, and public lands. This is about us as journalists, Recognizing that we'll hold a politician accountable if they say something vile once, but we won't do it if they do it every day. Our double standard is unfair to all the elected officials in Colorado, Republicans and Democrats, who display human decency. That's about as accurate as you can get. Like, it's, it's hard to talk about politics when you have that type of, of dynamic going on. Very concise and well put that. Yeah. Yep. That type of thing is helpful because we're getting more and more of this, right? Now, look, I think there's an argument from a political perspective 
as to is it was this the most sort of like effective thing for Democrats to do in censoring Paul Gozar? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm agnostic as to that. Um, on some level, I think there is, you know, I think it's important to say, like, we shouldn't have lawmakers sort of joke around about killing each other. That's probably unhealthy long term. As a political matter, I also think that Democrats sometimes try and isolate one bad actor as if, uh, you know, on the Republicans, as if they're um, dispositive, like they're, they're exceptions. Like when the Republicans focus on one Democrat, they're saying that because that Democrat is representative of all the Democrats. When Democrats focus on one Republican, they're saying that guy is out of bounds because even the other Republicans are better than that. Let's talk about the January 6th insurrection, because in your book, you talk so much about the enemy is us in some ways. We've got to figure out what to do in our republic. Tell me how communications and technology led to that and the risks you see coming out of the January 6th uprising. It will start first with communications. We, I believe, are a society that is ahead of ourselves technologically than we are in terms of maturity, meaning we have more technology than we are yet comfortable using. So we can communicate faster than we can think, and we usually do. We also have given opportunity for people who would leverage communication because the cost of passing information is essentially zero now. And so there's no barrier to entry in how much communication you can pass. So someone who wants to leverage that to get people to do something, particularly people who are already misinformed or are open to being misinformed, is pretty dangerous. In the book, we describe Adolf Hitler. He literally just takes a series of very basic messages and hammers them. And the scary part is not that some fringe part of Germany followed Adolf Hitler. It's that parts, massive parts of the German population did. And until the day he died in 1945, he was still relatively popular. And so the power of this should be daunting to us. Well, wait, we let, also me, just, let me ask you, tell me about yeah. the parallels you see. Do you see a parallel with that? Well, I do, because when people use the ability to inform and influence in a form of, I'll call it political opportunism, what they do is they leverage up people who are reliant upon pretty limited forms of in, uh, input information in some cases. You can get them to do things that like the January 6th insurrection. I don't believe that everybody who went to the Capitol was a bad person. I don't believe that they were racist. I don't believe that they were uh, trying to do something they thought was wrong. And that's the part that should give us pause because they did something that I view as extraordinarily wrong and dangerous, but they did it believing that they were doing something that was right. So who and was so, to blame for that? I think it's the people who used uh, the power. I think President Trump is at the top of that list, but he has an entire group of people around him, all of who have seen some benefit for themselves, either politically or otherwise, to align themselves and use that. And so I think what's it was the ongoing risk and vulnerability to our society coming out of January 6th? Well, the fragmentation of our society. I think we come out of January 6th. It should, just like COVID-19 should have been the ultimate unifying factor 
January 6th should have been a wake up call. It should have been like getting cold water dumped on us and say, wait a minute, what are we doing? We need to stop. We need to sober up. We need to do whatever we have to do to come back to some kind of rational political discourse at the highest levels. People are in the political sphere. And then the rest of us have need to get out of some of our tribal camps and we start to interact. And the danger is, I think, in the aftermath, we haven't done that. At the recent rally in Des Moines, former President Trump insisted that he won the 2020 election and he won a whole lot of the states, which is, of course, incorrect. Does that concern you that it's almost like a coup? And what do you expect for 2024? I think first I'll answer it in two parts. First, Walter, I think we need to look at our processes and we need to very transparently communicate that to the American people so that the absolute facts, as best we can know them, are known to a number of officials and then potentially to every American. So the truth is out there. The reality is out there. Then the question is, how do we treat people who just claim something that isn't so? I think if a person propagates the big lie, And we've had the big lie propagated for years. American tobacco refined the process for decades, and they did pretty well with it. And so we know how dangerous it is. We've got to have the courage to call it out. We've got to have the courage to say, that's just not true. And if you say things that are not true, you are, in all terms, a liar. And our society can't celebrate that. They can't say, yeah, That person's a liar, but they're a good person or they do good things. I can't connect the two. You know, there's a lot of people say, don't pay attention to what a certain leader says. Pay attention to what they do, because what they do is good. What they say doesn't count. I think what they say matters, because if you can't pay attention to that, how do you know what they're going to do? And so I think this is a societal norm issue, and it's one we're going to have to all take on. But it comes down to the question that as a military person, you know very well, which is collaborationism, people who are tempted to collaborate. And you have a lot of Republican senators, people you know, and congressmen from Leader McCarthy to Senator Graham, who just seem to go along with it. How dangerous are the people, including Republican leaders, who collaborate in this big lie? Well, I think to the degree any of us is tempted to collaborate, we become uh, dangerous all uh, even more so because we give credibility to it. I would uh, give a quote that I believe was used by Senator Cruz some years ago. He said, history will not be kind to the people who held Mussolini's coat. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think history is going to be really hard on those of us who don't stand up to our values when we know what's actually right. Georgia legislature passes gerrymandered state Senate map, giving GOP 59% of the seats in a state that Biden won by 49.5%. 100 percent of the population growth, he notes, in the past decade in Georgia is from communities of color. But maps create no zero new majority minority seats and entrench white GOP power for the next decade. 
And then this today from Ari Berman again, breaking Ohio Senate passes extreme gerrymandered congressional map, giving Republicans 80 percent of seats in a state that Donald Trump won with just 53 percent of the vote. Ohio and Georgia, of course, are the just the latest to take already gerrymandered maps from 2010 and make them even more extremely so following the 2020 census. Now that the Supreme Court has lifted the otherwise longstanding protection of the Voting Rights Act to prevent extreme partisan gerrymanders, you can't rely on the Voting Rights Act anymore to stop that. And it is just the latest example of why, at least in lieu of reforming the Senate filibuster to allow passage of the Freedom to Vote Act, which bars partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, in lieu of that, I believe that democratically controlled states, as much as I hate Saying it, as much as I hate holding this position, I believe that those states controlled by Democrats should now do the same wherever they can to at least try to counter this in plain sight takeover of at least the U.S. House, such that, as we previously reported, even if America votes exactly as it did in 2020, when it casts seven more million votes for Joe Biden over the other guy and five million more votes for Democratic candidates to the U.S. House than Republican candidates to the U.S. House. Even if America votes exactly that same way in 2022, guess what? Republicans will take majority control of the House thanks to this extreme partisan gerrymandering now going on all over the country in states controlled by Republicans. And with it, with that majority that they will win in 2022 at this rate, they will be able to then steal the 2024 presidential election if they so choose in a way that they were not prepared to do in 2020, but they are clearly preparing to do right now. So please pay attention. And to that end, I'm uh, finding the drumbeat of authoritarianism is sort of underscoring pretty much everything that I'm looking at with concern today. A drumbeat which Republicans, for some reason, seem to have an easier time uh, dancing to than the rest of us. <laughs> we ended yesterday's broadcast following the uh, signing of Joe Biden's landmark $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, about which Desi Doyen will have a few more details later today for us in her Green News report. Yes. But uh, we, we ended uh, uh, following that signing on the death threats that the few Republicans in the House who voted for that bill have been receiving of late, particularly since the authoritarian so-called Freedom Caucus in the House began calling for their fellow Republicans who voted for the bipartisan bill to lose their seats on House committees. And since George's Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, described the bill, an uncontroversial, by the way, uncontroversial and wildly popular bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, to uh, build roads and bridges. A bill supported by 19 Republican uh, U.S. senators, including Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. She decided to describe that bill as, quote, a communist takeover of America. Before she then went on to publish the phone numbers of the 13 Republicans in the House who voted for it, resulting in folks like Michigan's Fred Upton receiving death threats. Death threats over an infrastructure bill, for Christ's sake, that sounded uh, some of uh, those calls that sounded in, in part like this. You dumb mother, traitor, piece of 
not a piece of trash. Hope you die. Hope your family dies. Hope everybody your staff dies. You piece of traitor. <laughs> traitor. Over infrastructure. Yes. Because Republican Fred Upton of Michigan voted to spend money to fix crumbling roads and collapsing bridges. Appearing on CNN on Sunday, uh, Upton said, quote, it's a sad day when he faces threats for a bipartisan agreement on infrastructure. Some House Republicans have now turned against their own 13 colleagues who voted for that bipartisan bill, which they paint as, quote, the pathway to socialism. Now the Democrats have scored a legislative victory that the Trump administration failed to score for four years in office. I guess pathway to socialism is better than communist takeover of America, maybe, but give them time. Republican Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio on Sunday also lamented the threats that he also received after both he and Upton broke ranks from former President Trump and, and their colleagues with the votes that they cast in the past year on both the infrastructure bill and, if you think that was terrible, the votes they cast for Trump's second impeachment after he incited the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol to try and steal the 2020 election. As a bipartisan 57-43 majority in the U.S. Senate agreed that Trump was guilty of having done during his second impeachment trial. Donald Trump has already endorsed a primary challenger for Fred Upton for his sins. Gonzalez, for his part, has decided not to run for re-election. He was asked during an interview on Sunday by Jake Tapper on CNN about receiving death threats after voting for Trump's impeachment earlier this year and about Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, including, yes, on January 6th. He came very close to overturning an election through various methods how worried are you that next time he'll be better positioned and he'll undermine democracy? It looks to me, and I think any objective observer would come to this conclusion, that he has evaluated what went wrong on January 6th. Why is it that he wasn't able to steal the election? Who stood in his way? Every single American institution is just run by people. And you need the right people to make the right decision in the most difficult times. He's going systematically through the country and trying to remove those people and install people who are going to do exactly what he wants them to do, who believe the big lie, who will go along with anything he says. Um, and again, I think it's all pushing towards one of two outcomes. He either wins legitimately, which he may do, um, or if he, if he loses again, he'll just try to steal it. But he'll try to steal it with his people in those positions. And, and that's then the most difficult challenge for our country. You ask yourself the question, do the institutions hold again? Do they hold with a different set of people in place? I hope so, but you can't guarantee it. Um, the country, as much as I despise almost every policy of the Biden administration, and we could talk about that for you know, six hours, um, the country can survive a round of bad policy. The country can't survive torching the Constitution. We have to hold fast to the Constitution. That needs to be the bedrock upon which we build our party and our movement. Uh, we have to be a party of ideas. We have to be a party of truth. And if the cold, hard truth is Donald Trump led, led us into a ditch on January 6th. The former president lied to us. He lied to every one of us. 
And in doing so, he cost us the House, the Senate, and the White House. I see fundamentally a, a person who shouldn't be able to hold office again because of what he did around January 6th. But I also see somebody who's an enormous political loser. And I don't know why anybody who wants to win elections going forward would follow that. I simply, like, I don't get it ethically. I certainly don't get it politically. Neither of them make sense. If he's the nominee again in 24, I will do everything I personally can to make sure he doesn't win. Now, I'm not voting for Democrats, but whether that's find a viable third party or whether that's try to defeat him in primaries, whatever it is, um, that's going to be where I'll spend my time. Because you're worried about what he'll do to democracy? Yeah, I don't trust him. January 6th was the line that can't be crossed. January 6th was an unconstitutional attempt led by the President of the United States to overturn an, an American election and reinstall himself in power illegitimately. That's fallen nation territory, that's third world country territory. My family left Cuba to avoid that fate. I will not let it happen here. Can I stop him? I have no idea. But I believe as a citizen of this country who loves this country and respects the Constitution, that's my responsibility. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, Republican of Ohio, calling Donald Trump a political loser, saying he will do anything he can to prevent him from being elected, except, of course, voting for a Democrat. You know, at one point, uh, despise Congressman Gonzalez. You despise every one of Joe Biden's policies. How about you disagree with them? How about you might do things a different way? Yes, as much as I'm happy to hear Gonzalez uh, speak the way he's speaking, uh, at least in regard to Donald Trump, Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez is also part of the problem that he now decries, that has now come back to bite him, that world that he lives in. Where he, he doesn't disagree with the uh, Democratic president's policies. He despises them. But that's how authoritarianism works. As Joni Mitchell might say, you don't know what you got until it's gone. Today's episode is sponsored by Tentree, a clothing company that plants, take a guess, Ten trees for every item you purchase. And now I'm not a big fan of purchasing clothes in general, the process, the consumption, the environmental impact, and so on. But we all need clothes. And so then the next question is about how to purchase ethically while still keeping it stylish. Or at least that's my next question. So I'm thankful for when a company like Ten Tree comes along that makes it easy to shop ethically. They have all kinds of products with a major focus on essentials that tend to look sort of effortlessly stylish, if you know what I mean. And everything is guaranteed to be earth-friendly and ethically made, which all comes before those 10 trees get planted on top. In case you're wondering how they're doing, they've planted over 65 million trees so far and are aiming to have planted a billion trees by 2030. So to learn more about 10 Trees planting mission and to grab some comfy, sustainable clothes, check out their website at 10tree.com, all spelled out, and use the code BEST to get 15% off your first order. things like war or imperialism, they're not popular at all. And so as long as you sort of do the rhetoric of that, you can kind of get away with not having follow through. And a perfect example of this is Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, who for 
during the Trump administration constantly said, I support Trump's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Early Biden years, Biden announced they were pulling out and he criticized him for this. As Alex Shepard, who wrote in the New Republic, his headline pretty much sums it up, quote, Josh Hawley was in favor of withdrawing from Afghanistan until Joe Biden did it. For a hot minute, the Missouri senator and insurrection advocate was a critic of the forever war, but then changed. I would not use hot minute in a subheadline, but whatever. Josh Hawley, for months, had boosted Trump's May 1st withdrawal deadline, tweeting in April 2021, quote, President Biden should withdraw troops in Afghanistan on May 1st, <laughs> as the Trump administration planned. But better late than never, it's time for the forever war to end. This is after um, this is after <laughs> right. Biden announced they were going to pull out troops at the end of August. So Biden actually did pull out troops. And of course, this was where things, this goes to show you that it, then it reverts back to partisanship. So Tucker Carlson, Josh Hawley, all these people who claim they supported the withdrawal of Afghanistan when Trump did it, or sort of in theory, when Biden actually did it, withdrew the military, obviously they still have drone strikes, but that's not what he cares about. They revert back to their default state, which is a partisan hack because they're fundamentally Republican messaging organs and they couldn't praise the president for doing it. So what did they do? They did the process criticism where, oh shit, he actually did it. I can't believe it. Didn't see that coming. I guess now I have to reverse engineer to hate or oppose him because they can't say anything positive about the president because then that that's not an option. So he actually did it wrong or he didn't do it racist enough. He sort of, he was too woke to refugees. And so they sort of go find these little things to pick on, which politically is utterly useless. This is why you can't really build a coalition with these people outside of maybe some explicit legislation because rhetorically, or at least from a sort of PR standpoint or, or a kind of morale standpoint, they're always going to find some bullshit reason to throw you in the bus because you're a Democrat. Even though had Trump pulled out with the exact same conditions and the exact same outcomes, they would have absolutely defended him because they're they're fundamentally just partisan hacks. And so he said, when Biden finally pulled out, he said, quote, Biden has now overseen the deadliest day for US troops in Afghanistan in over a decade. And the crisis grows worse by the hour. So they try to create a sort of Benghazi scenario. Another sort of supposed of people who supported the withdrawal, like Matt Gates and Tulsi Gabbard, who also claimed to support pulling the troops out of Afghanistan, did the same Benghazi routine as well, because of using the sort of thin process criticism. And as we talked about in our news brief on, on Afghanistan, there was no way you were going to ever pull out of the war, which you lost, without there being some confusion, chaos, and people dying. There was just no way that was going to happen. Now we can, again, I think there's some debate about whether or not you process enough refugees, whether or not you give enough forewarning, but the whole thing was based and has been for several years was based on a house of cards. It was always going to fall. And so it's not totally clear what the political utility of the supposed support for withdrawal, if there was no plausible scenario where there was going to be withdrawal, they would have supported it. Tucker Carlson has done this a lot. You know, during the Trump years, he was, you know, allegedly in favor of pulling out of Afghanistan. But then, of course, when Biden finally did earlier this year, Carlson dedicated countless hours of his Fox News show to criticizing Biden on flimsy process critiques, as we've discussed. And of course, on the refugee issue, as you mentioned, Adam, not being adequately discriminatory. And one thing people like J.D. Vance always do is they they always... But again, J.D. Vance jumped on this too. He tried to Benghazi it as well. That's they all did because they all read from the same talking points. They constantly talk about needing to refocus on China, which of course is not really an anti-imperialist or anti-war position. It's simply refocusing our the largest empire in the history of the world away from bombing Muslims into building up hostilities and some kind of Cold War and uh, presumably some proxy war with China who are viewed as more meaningful threat or kind of a new sexier threat from the right. Don't get me wrong, they still want to keep our military bases in the Middle East and and they still want to help support Israel carpet bomb Gaza. 
All that goes without saying, but maybe let's shift some focus away from Afghanistan to the eastern part of China and Japan and Taiwan. So again, the supposed interwar rhetoric is always coupled with and the reason we know that is because things like NDAA votes, the National Defense Authorization Act, where you basically vote for $800 billion to a trillion dollars in military spending. People like Josh Hawley, supposedly anti-military Josh Hawley, support the bill. His major objection to the bill, Nima, was what? It was two things. It was uh, new policies around the inclusion of trans people and renaming military bases named after Confederate generals. This is what he was opposed to. And before that, had always voted for NDAA. So our supposed anti-war right, when it comes to actually funding the military, always votes yes. Now, the final trope that we want to discuss is this idea of the ever-renewed same old, same old <laughs> that we've been seeing from the John Bircher right. So like the kind of repackaging of these tried and true right wing tropes as something now new, some this kind of new populism that is emerging. And we saw this, of course, via the astroturfing of the Tea Party patriots in 2009 and 2010, very early in the Obama administration. Yeah, because here's the deal, right? A fundamental problem with right-wing ideological production and reproduction is that a lot of people don't want to feel like they're defending the big guy, the big corporation. Like very few people, except for like your kind of Alex B. Keaton types, the people who go and intern for Marco Rubio, those like Georgetown psychos who get internships at the Heritage Foundation and have pictures of Ronald Reagan on their wall growing up. You know, outside of those people, most, I feel like a lot of people sort of want to view themselves as being supportive of the little man. Yeah, fighting the good fight. And one of the fundamental problems with American empire is the same for the Republican Party, which is how do you make the big bad guys who are well-funded seem like the underdogs? Just like, how do I write a TV show and make America the sole superpower of the world? How do I make them seem like the underdogs? This is one of the hardest parts about writing an action movie for the last 20 years or writing for 24 or writing the various Rambo sequels. Yeah, that's why Aliens <laughs> became so popular. How do, you, how do you make the big guy seem like the little guy is the fundamental propaganda question they have to figure out. We've talked about numerous ways to do that, including this kind of warped class language, a total ontological trick with respect to how we define elites, the sort of taking vague anger towards the media and channeling it into hatred for very specific subset of media, MSNBC, NBC News versus, again, Fox News, right? And the way they do that is they kind of redo the same things over and over again. <laughs> now, there are twists and there are other more organic currents. But what we saw with the Tea Party, which we think is worth honing in on when talking about this kind of repackaging John Bircherism, because it was so obviously bullshit and astroturfed and also racially charged, as the New York Times would say, I would say racist, <laughs> is they took this genuine outrage and anger after the financial collapse in 2008, and which, of course, the recession in 2009. And this is largely a failure of liberals and the left so-called Democratic Party to sort of capture that anger. And they swooped in and they just did a warmed over version of John Bircherism with the Tea Party largely funded by, in many ways, the Koch brothers, whose father, Fred C. Koch, founded the John Bircher Society in 1958, along with other right-wing millionaires like the Bradley Foundation of the Bradley Family Foundation that you've heard a lot about on the show. They fund a lot of the charter school stuff. That these tropes and these images and this language and this rhetoric were just recycled from other astroturfed right-wing populist movements 
up to and including many of the people who financed the rise of Ronald Reagan. And the way you do this is you sort of make it seem like it's this spontaneous thing. And I want to say that in many ways, the Tea Party fed off of and basically co-opted much of the Ron Paul support in 2008, which as odious as I may find it to be, I think was probably a little bit more organic. Again, the anti-war stuff people latched onto, skepticism about the Fed people latched onto. These things are never entirely astroturfed. But I do think that the degree to which the Tea Party movement was astroturfed by billionaire donors was continually downplayed and obscured by corporate media for reasons we'll get into. But we think that with the latest iteration, the kind of Orrin Cass, J.D. Vance, the Hudson Institute, the Claremont Institute, even the American Enterprise Institute, the way that these forces are trying to talk about this new right, this new pro-labor right, new populist right, I'm looking at myself and I'm like, this is the same shit we did 10 years ago, the last time the Republican brand took a hit, right? Because the Republicans didn't do that well in 2020. Obviously, they lost the White House. They've been overrun by QAnon and Trump weirdos. Just as in 2008, they were sullied by Bush and his wars and the economic recession in his name. So there's a bunch of people in a whiteboarding session like, how do we sort of rebrand our party, which is all they're doing? Now, there are various currents, various interests. These things are never that binary. But that's basically why the, what the Tea Party was and why the Tea Party is sort of a good thing to reexamine from that context, because you see the ways in which they took this genuine anger and confusion about the state of the economy and they swooped in and they took this mantle of quote-unquote populism while Democrats sat there and twiddled their fucking thumbs. Steve Bannon turned himself over to the authorities. He's been found in contempt of Congress. He handed himself over to the FBI. He is now out and free and has basically thrown down the gauntlet and says that he's going to make life hell for the Democrats for uh, putting him in, the, in this situation. Yeah, it's strange because it really wasn't a, him surrendering. You know, there was no bail pay. There was no formal sure. processing of that. So he was just kind of like, hey, what's happening, guys? And then, you know, let's let's do a press conference. Um, you know, it was funny because I noticed this listening to a very brief section of the press conference where he kept saying the phrase stand by. And yep. um, apparently a lot of people noticed this. I, I wasn't the only one. Uh, did you? Yeah. And this has turned into, of course, if, if, if people might remember back during the presidential debates between Trump and Biden, uh, Trump was very specifically asked about the Proud Boys and paramilitary groups in, in the right wing. And he said very specifically, uh, stand by. And the Proud Boys and these other right wing paramilitary groups, uh, they heard him loud and clear. They knew exactly what Trump was saying. They started using standby as sort of a, a catchphrase. Obviously, Bannon is doing that as well. On one hand, and, and by the way, like immediately he got out and went on a live stream. He went and podcasted, uh, has already basically said that this means war, which is his favorite type of thing. Um, this feels, along with a lot of other things, like an escalation. Uh, it feels like Bannon is going to take full advantage of this. Obviously, he gains power from being prosecuted. He gains power from having to face this thing. Uh, and and he's getting exactly what he wants. The right wing is getting exactly what they want with uh, their desire and lust for martyrdom. Uh, it's the right thing. It's what should be happening. But it does feel like we're kind of waiting on another shoe to drop at this point. You know, um, he also directly references, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi as a threat. 
that yep. he wants to go after these people, which so we'd expect to start seeing some sort of rat fucking going on with them. But he also referenced Hillary Clinton. So this is what's interesting because these people are not really, you know, the brightest people. And is that a tell that he is saying, you remember what happened to Hillary and what we did to her? We are now going to do that to Biden and Pelosi and whatever. You know, it doesn't take a huge stretch to to imagine that what he's saying is like all the things that they made up about Hillary um, from Pizzagate and all the Russian interference as well could easily be turned as a fire hose on to them, um, which has probably already happened in the past as it is. And so this is an interesting tale. Like, is he now sort of almost confirming <laughs> that they are they've worked together with Russian and misinformation this whole time? I don't know, but it, it was interesting. Well, you know, we, we talked a couple episodes ago. It was when the uh, the realtor, the MAGA realtor, realtor went to January 6th, obviously, and, and, and live streamed and, and used it as a way of advertising her business. That's not who Bannon is. There are a lot of people in the right wing ecosystem who are it's part of a grift. Right. And and by the way, don't get me wrong. Bannon is grifting people. I mean, he has taken an amazing amount of money from these people all along the way. Uh, Bannon is an actual ideologue. Bannon has contacts all around the world. He has worked extensively to build anti-democratic ties in every region of the world. He has actually started one anti-democratic, neo-fascistic training school in multiple countries to the point where even right-wing countries have said, you know what, this is a bit too extreme for us. You need to go. This thing is going to get worse. This is exactly the type of thing that Bannon wants. I mean, it, it, he didn't he didn't defy the co- the committee, you know, just happenstance. It, it wasn't something that he, he took lightly. He wanted this fight. He wanted it to seem like he was going to war in order to marshal resources, in order to radicalize people. Um, you're exactly right, I think, which is there is going to be some sort of escalation, whether or not it's misinformation, whether or not it's some sort of attack, whether or not it's some sort of a call to arms. It is almost a certainty at this point that something from this is probably going to um, a, a, a switch is going to get flipped. Something somewhere is is in motion at this point because this is exactly what Bannon and all of his cronies this this is what they dreamed of. Right, and I would, by the way, take a misinformation campaign any day over inciting the Proud Boys to violence, which yep. you know at this point, as it's growing as a movement, uh, could very well be a, a really you know severe thing where they will plan stuff. And again, they were emboldened, not scared by uh, January sixth. This was a this was a test run. And, uh, it was very organized. We've, we've now, we keep finding out more and more information than we will, uh, about how the uh, politicians were involved. And again, it was all the piece of the puzzle. They needed uh, a insurrection, a violent, you know, uh, attempt on the, on the Capitol to facilitate the delaying of the counting of votes so that they could then, you know, uh, convince, I guess, Mike Pence to, you know, not accept electorate. So anyway, the point being that like that, this is all part of a process. And, you know, yeah, Bannon sounds like, you know, the Obi-Wan thing. He's like, strike me down. I'll be more powerful than you'd ever imagine. And this is sort of what he sounds like he's trying to do. And he's not going to accept being arrested as the thing. He will continue to be as active as he can. But this is going to be the rallying cry. 
it, it's it's really concerning. I, I, and I think the problem with the Democrats is they're treating this like, you know, everyday politics. We're going to follow the exact letter of the law and do everything we've always done in the past to deal with a completely new and other situation that does not apply to what we have had. And I think that's my fear is that they're going to get screwed here uh, and taken advantage of. It was a no win situation for Merrick Garland and the Democrats. Um, you know, it, on, on one hand, if Bannon was going to just, you know, basically throw up both middle fingers to the commission and the subpoena and they weren't going to do anything at that point, as Trump has shown us time and time again, if there are no consequences for your actions, well, I'm going to do whatever I want. Not absolutely nothing will stand in my way. But Bannon, like a lot of really good chess players, had multiple moves here. On one hand, if he wasn't going to be brought to task, that was going to make him more powerful in a different way and he'd be able to act with impunity however he wanted. In this case, um, you know, I, I want to be very clear about this because we're going to get into some some deep water here today. Steve Bannon is a revolutionary. That's that's how he patterns himself. That's what he believes. He really, truly, honestly believes. This guy who, by the way, made a ton of money off of Seinfeld syndication money. I mean, that that's that's where a lot of Bannon's money comes from. For those who don't know, he really fashions himself as some sort of a revolutionary figure. In this case, revolutionary figures love the escalation. They love whenever a culture war gets hot and all of the ingredients are happening right now to turn this culture war up a couple of notches. And and this is happening everywhere from revolutionaries like Bannon, the ideologues on the far right who are who are calling of course for Caesarism and the suspension of democracy, who are writing memos. We just found out by the way, Eastman, I don't know if you saw this, Eastman didn't just write a memo that said how to try and overturn the election in Congress. He wrote a memo to Trump on how to use the military and and how to basically bring the country to heel in a military coup. Well, we're going to talk more about that. For those of you who tuned in to hear us talk about Michael Flynn, don't worry. We're going to talk about Michael Flynn in just a minute and how this whole thing plays into it. But Bannon absolutely welcomes this. And it was a no-win situation for the Democrats. There was nothing they could do. One way or another, there was going to be a problem that was sown from this. And I think we said this last week. He had to be brought in. He had to. You had to go ahead and press charges against him and you had to hold him accountable. But you also have to understand that this is not this isn't just political theater right now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The, these aren't symbolic actions. These are these are steps right now that at any moment the ice could break through. And yeah. that's 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 what people at home need to understand. But that's especially what politicians at this point need to understand is they're they're playing with live ammo right now. That's yeah. that's where we are. Article 1, Section 6 of the U.S. Constitution immunizes members of Congress for the things they say on the House or a floor of the House or Senate. Quote, the senators and representatives for any speech or debate in either house shall not be questioned in any other place. They cannot be questioned in court or by the president, for example. That's called the speech and debate clause. And the founders included the speech and debate clause because they recognized how important it is for members of Congress to be able to speak freely, especially in arguments or in the course of legislative affairs and democratic conflicts. Speech and debate 
are at the center of what it means to be a member of Congress. It's what they do. And sometimes it gets nasty, not just in the year 2021, not just in our time. Founders knew that things got very, very nasty between them all the time. Now, more broadly, outside of those congressional chambers, of course, we in constitutional law and American society, we've got a distinction between speech, which is rightly protected by the First Amendment, and then all kinds of actions, particularly violence, which, of course, are not. There's a middle space between those two, between speech and action, between speech and violence, and that is speech that hints at violence or flirts with it or threatens or incites it. And there's a whole complex set of legal questions and jurisprudence about the nature of that speech. But putting that aside, just talking as citizens, I think we can all agree that a civic culture in which prominent mainstream politicians are constantly engaging in that kind of speech is not a healthy one. A culture where prominent political leaders are constantly fantasizing about the use of violence against their political enemies or sharing cartoon versions of violence against their foes. Not great for American democracy. And that was the subject of debate on the House floor today. The members of the House took up the question of whether to censure Republican Paul Gosar of Arizona for posting a video that showed a photoshopped animation of him killing his Democratic colleague Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Joe Biden. During the debate before that resolution passed, stripping Gosar as well of his committee assignments, the subject of that anime film that was posted, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, stood up to lay out the broader case of just how dangerous this all is. It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong. And instead decides to venture off into a tangent about gas prices and inflation. What is so hard? What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? Our work here matters. Our example matters. There is meaning in our service. And as leaders in this country, when we incite violence with depictions against our colleagues, that trickles down into violence in this country. And that is where we must draw the line independent of party identity or belief. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, not alone, other members also rose to speak about the increasing threats they have faced recently. I am a victim of violence. I know what it's like. I also was in the gallery clamoring for life when the shots rang out in the speaker's lobby. Violence against women in politics is a global phenomenon. A 2016 survey by the Interparliamentary Union found that 82% of women parliamentarians have experienced psychological violence, and 44% have received threats of death, rape, beatings, or abduction. The intent of these online threats against women is clear. Silence them, strip them of their power, and discourage them from running for office. 
Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California is also the sponsor of the resolution to censure Paul Gosar. She will be joining me alongside the co-sponsor of the resolution, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas, in just a bit. But threats and violence are, as best we can tell, becoming more commonplace in politics. In a recent New York Times piece, Debbie Dingell, a Democrat from Michigan, said she was threatened by men with assault weapons outside her home last year after she was denounced by Tucker Carlson on his Fox News show. She also shared a portion of a voicemail, one of hundreds of threats she's received, saying, quote, They ought to try you for treason. I hope your family dies in front of you. I pray to God that if you've got any children, they die in your face. Earlier this year, the Capitol Police uh, backed up with data what has seemed to be anecdotally the case, which is that there has been a 107% increase, a doubling, in the threats against members year over year compared to 2020, a doubling. And of course, threats, people leaving voicemails, showing up outside your home, showing up with guns in the Michigan State House, as they did uh, last year, quite famously. Uh, it's not all abstract. I mean, now it comes in the aftermath of January 6th, the day that Paul Gosar sent this tweet saying Joe Biden should concede and threatening, don't make me come over there with a picture of the mob. And of course, that was the day that thousands of rioters descended on the Capitol, both threatening violence against measures and even then Vice President Mike Pence, and also engaging in violence against police officers. They brought a noose, they displayed on a gallows, and they chanted, hang Mike Pence. Not, you know, as a joke, as far as we know. The threat of violence was everywhere that day. What do you think is the semantic purpose of the construction of a gallows outside a place? Just listen to this clip of the mob stalking the halls looking for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Where are you, Nancy? We're looking for you. What do you think they would have done if they found her? What's implied in that, Nancy? You think they want to meet her? Over the past several years, this threat of violence has seeped into political rhetoric on the right much more broadly. There was this. This is one I'm picking essentially at random. This menacing statement from Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who was just angry about social networks allegedly censoring conservatives earlier this year. Silicon Valley can't cancel this movement or this rally or this congressman. We have a second amendment in this country, and I think we have an obligation to use it. What's that mean? What's it mean? You have a second amendment. You're going to shoot Twitter? Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. She's, this is sort of par for the course for her. Made all sorts of disturbing threats. Like There was this image that she posted on Facebook last year, posing with a big gun next to pictures of Democrats Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib captioned, Squad's Worst Nightmare. This, that kind of iconography, the, the conservative uh, politician with the big gun, th that's everywhere. I mean, you can pull up primary Republican ads at random right now. And the flirtation with the endorsements of political violence is increasingly mainstream among conservative Republicans. And it's not good. And my thinking about that, aside from common sense, is informed by a, a book I read. Uh, about the period leading up to the Civil War. It's by historian Joanne Freeman. It's an incredible book, and she documents this period. It's called The Field of Blood. And in it, 
painstakingly, it took her about 10 years to write, I think, she tracks how often debates in Congress about slavery became heated and then past heated how often there were threats, explicit threats of duels and violence and even actual violence. The most famous, of course, the caning of Senator Charles Sumner, which took place in the Senate chamber in 1856 after he criticized slaveholders. But even before that caning and amidst that time, the specter of violence loomed, the rhetoric of it. And all of that represented the breakdown in the democratic culture of the nation as it moved moved towards the cataclysm of war on behalf of the slavers. We're in a very different place right now. Very different place, thankfully. But the lesson there is important. There is every reason in the world to take this stuff seriously and to be alarmed by it. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is right. It's wrong. It's wrong. We should be concerned about what it means in terms of the safety of members of Congress, sure, the nature of the modern Republican Party, but what it means for the very health of American democracy at this moment. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Majority Report, highlighting how vile politicians are held to a lower standard than the rest. Amanpour and Company spoke with General Stanley McChrystal about the legacy of Trump supporters. The broadcast explained the consequences of gerrymandering and the plans to steal the 2024 election. Citations Needed discussed the attempted rebranding of populism by the GOP and their process critiques of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The Muckrake Political Podcast explained the revolutionary tactics of Steve Bannon, and All In With Chris Hayes looked at the trajectory of rising political violence. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips, including Amanpour and company discussing the numerous red flags that should have signaled trouble leading up to January 6th. It wasn't like this was the first time this ever happened. You know, many pro Trump protesters came to D.C. twice between when the election happened on November 3rd and then on January 6th, first on November 14th for a a MAGA rally for President Trump and then again on December 12th. And each of those times, we were able to document that the things that they were talking about doing online in the days leading up to those two earlier protests, they came and did as advertised. Um, So to to say that it was aspirational when you've got these two examples of it already happening to a lesser degree, but there clearly have been violence by this group, by elements within this group. And the Rational National highlighting a recent example of bad faith GOP red baiting. This entire thing is a show because he understands his base, the Republican base, is not going to look into this. They don't even care about the facts. They just see a Biden pick who was part of the Young Communists. That's enough for them. This is a a crazy far left communist pick. I can't believe Biden picked this person. Look, she's a communist. It's just it's all dishonesty, and it, it shows you just how they use fear to mislead people. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you will receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Kwai 
from North Carolina. I was just thinking about the question you raised about the tendency of people when they get older to become more conservative. And I wanted to give this a, some thought because I'm the opposite. To give you some context, I'm 56 years old and I was started out actually when I was in high school, I was a Christian conservative. Now I'm neither. I am uh, no longer Christian and I'm actually becoming more and more progressive as I age. So I started thinking about my peers in my age group and, and older that are my friends and what are some of the common features that lean people towards conservatism. And uh, I think the first thing that probably everybody thinks of is fear of loss, which is that, you know, as you age and get closer to finding your mortality, you think about the things that you have gained in life and uh, when you see change and people talking about change, it does become more scary to, to certain folks and they are reluctant to embrace change, particularly when you're talking about, you know, as they get older, they acquire more wealth sometimes and people talk about redistribution of wealth. That idea is scary to them. Spirituality and mortality. I think about some of my friends that as they get older, they also engage in more spiritual practices. Some lean more into Christianity, some a monk that do other paths like general spirituality, paganism, Buddhism, that kind of thing. They do this thing that I call changing the world, however they might imagine it, through peaceful practices. That is prayer, mindfulness, uh, meditation, that kind of thing. As they, I, I think this happens as they see themselves approaching their mortality and they feel less effective at ability to change or effect change in other in the world. And so they can, you know, convince themselves that change is possible by meditation or other practices like that, prayer and so forth. And the other thing that I thought of is toughness psychology. And when I think about that, I'm thinking in terms of if you've been through life, you've been through a lot of different experiences and you've gone through some hard times and you've made your way through, it, it builds a kind of strength or toughness within you. And when you see the younger people coming along talking about more different kinds of respect and more different kinds of empathy and consideration and compassion. You know, if you're lean, liberal, or progressive, that actually sounds good to you. But at the same time, you have a tendency to view it from a lens of, you know, hey, I didn't have this kind of consideration when I was coming up, and I'm stronger and tougher because of it. And so why don't these young people, you know, sort of grow a spine and, and stand up to any kind of name calling, it'll make you stronger, that kind of thing. And this is where I think some of the, uh, the, the contradictory type terms come up, like black conservative, uh, gay, lesbian conservative. It's rare, but it happens. And I think it has to do with part of it, it has to do with that toughness and survival. And of course, Jay, you mentioned the wave theory, which is that if I'm reached a point where I was liberal or progressive at a certain point in time, I might have been ahead of the curve or ahead of the wave. And then at some point I was right there with the wave and, you know, had all these points of views. But if I don't keep up and keep learning, then the wave's going to pass me. And when it passes us, 
when I say us, I mean people as they age, there's a tendency to feel a little bit resentful or a little bit like, hey, wait, things are going too fast. So they, they got to a point where they feel like they were right and that's where they should settle. But I don't obviously feel that way. So, and the other thing I mentioned <clears throat> that I thought of was having put in the work, which I think about uh, the trouble that uh, Bernie Sanders ran into, I think, early in his campaign when he was interrupted, I think, by, I'm not sure if it was Black Lives protesters or the Movement for Black Lives uh, interrupted a speech that he was giving. And although he is progressive or, you know, relatively speaking, he had a, what I think is a white fragility moment where he just wanted them to shut up, let him speak and be polite and so forth. Hopefully he's learned something since then. But he was one of those that pointed to having marched in the 60s with uh, Dr. King. So he, he put in the work. And so now it's time for you know, everyone else to focus on, on what he wants. And so some of us, as we age, feel like we put in our work. And why should we have to work anymore? It should be time to start looking at retiring. And then the final thing, I think, is realism versus crushed dreams, which is where as you go through life and you have these dreams of doing certain things career-wise or artistically, wealth-wise for some people, and you realize how hard life is to get through, then, uh, and maybe this goes back to the toughness thing, uh, you realize that many of your dreams have gotten crushed or have become impossible to achieve. And looking at young people and their ideals about how they want idealistically the country to be or the world to be, it feels like they don't know. <laughs> like they don't understand what realism is and that their dreams are going to get crushed. And there's almost this instinct to want to protect them by saying, hey, slow your roll. You're not going to achieve what you think you're going to achieve. And so that can stand in the way, you know, or, you know, can be an obstacle to actually achieving those dreams by people trying to be what I call too realistic. I say let people, you know, support people as they try to change and make things more ideal. And if you can do that, then at least you're not standing in the way. And if they're going to have their green dreams crushed, then, you know, that, I hate that that could happen, but it does happen and it will make for stronger characters. So for me, all of these things <clears throat> haven't been so much of an issue for me because the, I realized that my core thing that's been the case ever since I was a, a teenager is that I value truth over being correct. That is to say, if I have a position and that position is challenged and I, I will think about it and consider the logic of it and consider the evidence. And if I realize I was wrong, I say, I was wrong. And it's painful and, and it can be embarrassing, but I much rather have truth over being correct. So thanks, Jay and, uh, and crew. Stay awesome.
thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So thanks, of course, to Kwai for calling in and leaving his series of thoughts on age and political affiliation. I really don't have anything to disagree with, with what Kwai said, so I, I just have a couple of things to sort of tack on top. The first is that I realized after that previous conversation on the on the subject that I could have summed it up better than I did if I had chosen the right words. And I think what I was going for is the difference between relative and absolute conservatism and liberalism. And so it seems that absolute conservatism goes down over time, or you could say absolute liberalism goes up over time, but relative conservatism goes up, whereas relative liberalism goes down. That is, I think, the fastest way to describe the difference between even though we are all moving towards liberalism, society moves faster relative to us, generally speaking. Kwai, as he described, might be an outlier because he moved very quickly from his old life and old ways of thinking and has moved very far to the left from where he started. But, I mean, he said he was in his 50s or something. He's got a long way to go. We're, we're going to see over the next, you know, 20, 30 years if, if that uh, wave of mainstream societal thought catches up with him or not. We'll see. The second thing that I wanted to jump off from was his discussion of toughness psychology. And I thought that was definitely an interesting insight. And I can think of examples of people in my own life or stories I've heard about people sort of appreciating the benefits that they got from society or, or even appreciating the progress that was made in their younger years and then starting to think, eh, I don't know that we need more progress. We did such a good job before and overcoming some obstacles is good. So, you know, I had to fight for it. Maybe the younger people should have to fight for it too, whatever it is in, in any given scenario. And to that, I would say, I don't really think that we need to worry about there not being enough obstacles for people to overcome. Humans are great at struggling, at fighting amongst themselves, at creating obstacles where really none need be. And I just don't see life getting too easy for people anytime soon. Now, the exception to this might be the passing along of excessive wealth generation to generation. You know, there are a lot more examples of the children of great wealth being pretty messed up by it than wealthy children ending up perfectly well-adjusted. But for general life difficulties that need to be overcome, you know, we're not running short on those anytime soon. And taking that thinking to its logical conclusion really starts to take us backward. You know, people who grew up on a farm recently might think, well, you know, city life makes you soft. But people who use an old tractor might think that using a modern GPS-controlled mega tractor makes you soft. Then there's the people who had to use an ox-pulled plow who might think that using any kind of tractor makes you soft. You see, so I would always be very wary of that 
things are getting too easy for the next generation line of thinking. Because what progressives would consider making the world better, things like reducing discrimination or universal health care and safety net programs and universal college and just generally making life easier for people by removing barriers, is basically a way of raising the baseline for everyone. So whereas I would warn against individual wealth transfers to kids, I actually fully endorse a sort of societal wealth transfer from each generation to the ones that follow in the form of everything I just mentioned, universal programs and cultural changes that generally make life easier so as to continually raise the baseline one generation to the next from which people get to start out in life. So if you can understand the instincts to want to give your own child every possible advantage in life, then it should be a very small leap of logic to understand the benefits of organizing society in such a way as to give entire future generations every advantage in life. And from there, it's an even smaller leap in logic to think that if giving every advantage possible to the next generation is good for the members of one country then it would likely be good for the members of all countries. So we don't get confused into thinking that this is a advantage over other people in the world. I'm talking about getting advantages over previous generations. You know, the, the world community of humans can be crabs in a bucket, always fighting with each other and pulling each other down. Or we can be collectively, you know, building humanity together with the goal of perpetually raising that baseline for everyone to enjoy the benefits of. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.